please be advised that today's episode discusses topics including human trafficking, child sexual exploitation, and suicide. If anything from today's chat brings up feelings of distress, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. I'm Jazz Rawlinson and this is Reasons to Live, your go-to podcast for inspiring stories of hope, triumph and inspiration from everyday people. Real voices, important issues, no holding back. Ready to join? As a former police officer and private investigator, Glenn Hulley has seen his fair share of awful things in his lifetime. However, nothing could have prepared him for what he was about to witness on a seemingly ordinary night in 2013. As Glenn sat in a Cambodian bar enjoying a drink while on holiday, he was approached by a local who asked him if he was interested in paying for sex with a local. Declining, Glenn thought that that would simply be the end of the discussion. The man then turned to him and in a quiet voice asked if he would be interested in a younger prostitute, specifically a child. Although horrified, Glenn was curious to investigate these claims. Were they legitimate or was it a scam? On a whim, he decided to play along. What he discovered not only shocked him to his core, but also changed the entire direction of his life. Eventually, this led him to create Project Karma, a not-for-profit who work alongside and educate Southeast Asian governments, police and communities to identify vulnerable children rescue and rehabilitate victims and catch perpetrators. Without a doubt, Glenn Hulley is one of the bravest people I know, and I'm really proud and excited to bring you this chat today. I was in Phnom Penh and I was uh, at a bar and my girlfriend was back at the hotel and I was just at a local bar having a drink and and uh, there was a, a number of tuk-tuk drivers uh, you know, out the front of the uh, the bar. And, you know, I've been talking to a few people, locals and uh, you know expats that were there. And been for a little while. And uh, this this uh, tuk-tuk driver out the front had spoken to me while I was standing there. And you know, it started off pretty much a lot of places in Southeast Asia. This this sort of thing happens where you know you'll be offered prostitution, and and that's pretty much what what happened to begin with. And Sort of, I could see that there was more to it though, and I thought, I firstly thought drugs. You know, the next thing he'll be offering me is drugs or something like that. Mm. And uh, and he sort of just looked at me, and then he and it just came out with it. And just said, "Oh, okay. Do, do you like younger, like younger children, like prostitutes?" And I'm like, "What do you mean, like kids?" And he was like, "Yeah, you know, like young young prostitutes, you know, boys, girls." And I'm like, "I don't know if this guy's like." If he's actually referring to children, or, you know, because he didn't speak great English, and I obviously mm. didn't speak, you know, Khmer. So um, I, I don't know. I just I didn't feel right, and I don't know. I just I had nothing better to do at that time, and I just so I, I just said to him, "Yeah, well, depends what how old you're talking about. Like, can you show me?" And he just said, "Yeah, of course, come with me." So I got wow. into and uh, yeah, he took me to a place not far away. Um, and it wasn't, you know, there was a person there, they had a big conversation and it wasn't long before a girl got marched out from, from elsewhere in the, the, the small house that we were in, um, that, that would have been, I don't know, my, my guess, I, I say to people, would be somewhere around 11 or 12, I would have thought. Wow. Uh, when I saw her, um, you know, and she was looking down at the ground. I've, I've shared that, you know, this, this story with, with, with a lot of people, um, 
and uh, I, I don't forget the you know the, some of the moments you know during this where I definitely could see that this wasn't the first time that you know this girl had experienced this. She she definitely knew the drill. She she didn't look at me. She looked at the floor. She was very passive, uh, and it was quite distressing uh, to think that you know if it wasn't me, it would have been someone else probably mm. tonight. Um, you know, and I was I was like, is this happening? You know, thinking to myself, is that is this happening every night? And not just to this girl. How many, how many girls? Uh, you know, I've done 13 years in Victoria Police. I've seen a lot of things, uh, you know, horrible stuff that happens in this world. Uh, but we don't have you know, anything on this sort of scale or ratio anywhere in Australia. Mm. Uh, well, it's that would be so shocking because it's not something that, I mean, of course, you know, the same sort of things happen in, in any country, but we don't often have somebody just come up to us when we're out having a drink and ask us if we want to, be exactly. with a child, you know. Of course, it's all hush hush, and you know, it's, it's not done. But but it is still so blatant. Like you know, this like you said, you don't go out, you know, somewhere on Ackland Street, St Kilda, and you go and have a drink, and you're going to get prospected by some taxi driver to take you to a child prostitution. Like it's it, it's quite confronting. You know, you mm. hear these things happening in the world, and, and obviously, I, I wasn't you know wrapped up in cotton wool. Like I said, thirteen years, you know, in Victoria Police. But even still, to be confronted with it was quite distressing. Um, but, you know, my your initial reaction is you, you want to, you know, remove her from the situation. Mm. But obviously, I had zero leverage in that situation um, as a foreigner, and I, I wouldn't have even known exactly where I'd been taken to, to be honest. I mean, yeah, you know, I've, yeah. looked, I've looked back on that. You know, obviously, when I've talked to people about this story over the last few years, and yeah, you know, I, I realised it was quite a stupid thing to do. There was no real planning to it. It was quite dangerous. Um, mm. I've just, I've got an inquisitive nature and a, uh, a certain amount of confidence. I usually back myself in in certain situations. So I didn't really consider it. I just ran with it. And, and looking back, it wasn't the smartest thing to do. And once the the girl was brought out um, and you realised that this guy was serious and what was actually going on, what did you, what did you do and what did you say? Well, I really, I found myself in a situation I hadn't thought it through properly. I thought, you know, what do you do now? Um, and I, I thought the best thing to do would be just to be polite and say that you know, I actually like younger girls, you know, this one's too old. And I would have thought that that might make them think that I'm pretty sick in the head and mm. make me go home. You know, Give you an excuse away. to get out of that situation. Yeah, that I'm, I'm a real sicko. Like, you know, that's what I thought. And so uh, that, uh, that's what I did. I, I, I said to him uh, in front of in front of the guy, and I said to him, "Look, I appreciate you taking me." I said, but "Look, she's a little bit too old. I actually like the, the younger than that, you know." And his reaction was just normal, like blank. He's just like, "Oh, okay, yeah, we can do that." I'm like, "Wow, what? here?" And he's like, "Oh, no, no, we have to go somewhere else." I went, "Oh, okay." And so then he spoke with the guy again, and obviously sort of spit it over or whatever, and, and we left. Um, and he took me to another place, which was a park. And he'd been on the phone texting while he was driving the tuk-tuk with me in the back, obviously to this communicating with this other person, and met this tuk-tuk at this park and asked me to get out of the tuk-tuk and go with this other guy. And I said, oh, look, I'm not really feeling comfortable about this. I don't know who he is. Look, I think we should just go back to the bar. He said, no, 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 we've got it organised. I've already arranged it with him. He's, he's already texted the other person and this they'll have this, this, this kid for you. So it'll be ready to go. And I was just like, oh. God, I really didn't feel good about it, but I, I went. It was late at night too. By this stage, it was like midnight, and 
anyway, it's, you know, it was a fair way. It would have been at least half an hour out of Phnom Penh. It was quite rural, the area that we got to. And uh, we went inside this place, very poor area. The house was very poor. Um, and uh, we had to sit on the floor, and it was an old lady that, that he was talking to. And she went out the back, and uh, she came out not long later with a, a young girl, uh, I would say around four or five years old. And she was still in her 90s. She was rubbing her eyes. She'd clearly just been like dragged out of bed. And, uh, and he said to me, is this, is this what you want? Is this what, what you like? And uh, I, I remember asking him before in the other house, and I said to him how much that, that the other girl was. And he told me $20 US and uh, to take away with us for an hour. And uh, I said to him, well, how much? And he said, uh, the younger ones are more expensive. He said, it's like $50 US. And I said, so what, what, what do we do now? And he said, well, we can take her back to your hotel. And again, I was constantly just trying to think of ways to, to get out of this. I've seen it now. Obviously, it's this real. Um, mm. My concern was like, what am I, I really didn't think this through. How am I going to extricate myself from the situation? Um, and so, you know, I, I just said to him, um, we, we can't take her back to my hotel. I said, you know, there's the staff there. No, I haven't got a kid. You know, and I come waltzing in with the young kid. They're going to call the police. And I said, no, no, I can't do that. Um and he said, oh, yeah, no, that's fine. He said, look, I know a place where you can pay for a room by the hour. He said, I can take you there. They don't ask any questions. And I'm like, oh, here we go. They've got that worked Unbelievable. Out. I was just going to say, they've got it all worked out down to yeah. every single option. Yep, yep. And so, yeah, this is what they do in Southeast Asia. They all share the, 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 the business, you know what I mean? Like, I, I can provide the room, you know, I can provide the, the child, and, and the foreigner is the, is the target. Yeah, you know, it happens in many of these countries. But yeah, you know, this is obviously the first time I'd ever seen it, you know, with my own eyes. Um, you know, three years later down the track, four years later down the track, it's a lot different. I've been around now. Um, I, I then I, I just went on the front foot and I, I sort of got angry and I just said, Listen, I don't know who you are, I don't know who she is. You know, you could be setting me up, you could be the police for all I know. I said, Look, I appreciate the fact that you've you've shown me that it's available and I said, um, I'm happy to pay you the fifty dollars US for taking me around and showing me tonight what's available i said but i'm not doing anything tonight i said i'm going to go away now have a think about it i said if, if i'm interested and i want to do this i'll be at bar tomorrow night and you'll see me there and give me the signal and we'll go have a talk and we'll work it out and i might do it but at the moment it's not happening tonight and he was actually pretty good with that he, he, he took the 50 off me he said, yeah, that's fine and um he took me back to the to the bar. It took us about forty five minutes to get back. He took me back to the bar. It was nearly two in the morning. Were you time. were you crapping yourself the whole ride back, wondering? Yeah, well, he seemed he seemed okay. Like when I offered him the fifty dollars for the mm. for his trouble and stuff, he seemed all right with that. So I thought, yeah, I think I'm okay. You're right. And uh, he didn't know that I was flying out to Laos the next day. So obviously, I was never going to be in that bar or in Phnom Penh mm. the next day. So, but you know that that really sort of. Uh, it definitely changed me. It definitely stuck with me and, and every country I went to after that on a trip. Uh, you know, I found that you know, if I wasn't approached for it, I could easily ask and I was pointing in the right direction very easily. So it, it, when I got back to Australia, it, it, it seemed to me that that's what I needed to wow. start looking at. I, and that's where I headed down well, that road. I can imagine a lot of people, you know, if they were confronted with something like that, they might get back to Australia and um, probably be shocked and horrified and it it'd make an amazing story to tell their friends and they might be inspired to maybe give some money to a charity, but they'd probably just move on with their lives, you know, as, 
as you know tends to go people get busy they get back into the, into their lives um what what do you think it was that made you decide to essentially pack up your entire life and move overseas and start project karma yeah well you're right i mean that's exactly what i did at the start and i've had to find a balance over the last couple of you know last three or four years in doing this you know having family and commitments in, in australia but also having uh, business and work uh, overseas it's been quite a challenge but you're right it was at the start I, I did give up everything and, and, and went overseas um, and I guess what led to that was when I got back from my trip I did a lot of research over about a six-month period trying to find out more about the issue I, I, I found that there really wasn't a lot of information publicly out there people really didn't know the, the scale of the problem and the more I educated myself on it the more I found how big the problem really is in the world and, and how little at the time was really being done about it. Um, I decided that uh, the only way to, to, to make some contribution because I felt that there's a lot of people that have my skill set in the world but they didn't have my certain circumstances at that time. I'd gone through a divorce. My, my children were living with, uh, with my ex-wife uh, so I was only seeing them once every two weeks. Um, I got rid of my house, you know, all, all the stuff that comes with a divorce and also changing your life uh, and then building this charity, um, I really left myself with, with nothing um, uh, because I felt that uh, I was in a position that I could go over and I could give my time and I, I wouldn't need to be paid uh, the, the sort of Western salaries that people would expect. These are the biggest challenges. There's lots of people that want to help in this problem, in this fight. Uh, that have the, the, the you know the, the, the sort of skill sets that are needed. Um, unfortunately, they've got mortgages, they've got families, they've got. And that's not unfortunate. That's a, it's a good thing. But I mean, I mean, mm. unfortunately, that they can't just up and uproot their lives and go overseas for six months, a year, five years. Exactly. Uh, so, and, and I was just in the right place at the right time, I guess, in my life for a change. And uh, and this was an influence that. Uh, that pointed me in a direction that, that I'm glad that, that has put me down. It's put me in a very unique position, and I'm very thankful that you know I'm able to do what I do. Um, not, not many people can can feel that they they're making a difference or that they're they're able to have an impact. And I've been able to uh, be given a platform um, to to do some of the, you know, this sort of stuff that that is making a difference. And uh, and I think that's very rare and, I, and a very uh, uh, thing to, uh, an important thing to cherish. So I'm very grateful. So fast forwarding, you know, uh, some months or some time where you went overseas and you started working on Project Karma, I remember that the last time we chatted, you mentioned that one thing that you wanted your organisation to focus on was something that um, often isn't really tackled as much by some of the other organisations out there, and that's that. Um, there's a lot of organisations out there rescuing and rehabilitating victims, but not as often are they able to actually go after the perpetrators and get justice for the victims by actually having um, these perpetrators sentenced, um, you know, and, and working with police and all of those sorts of things. And one of the things that you mentioned was that 85% of child sex abuse is actually conducted by locals. Um yeah, and so that was one of the major things that you wanted to address, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely one of the areas we wanted to address. I found over a number of years uh, in this sphere, I found there's a number of uh, non-government organisations and government agencies that, that are actually you know, all addressing this, this global issue. Um, 
particularly of transnational child sex offenders and the commercialisation of, of child sexual exploitation, the profitability side of things. Um, there's, they've, they've definitely had more attention and focus in, in recent years, um, but I'm yet to see a model that encompasses uh, a true long-term approach to this. Every one of these organisations, for instance, will have their own projects uh, that are dedicated to this type of problem that might be focusing on uh, investigation and prosecution. Others might be focusing more on rescuing and rehabilitating victims. Others might be more interested in educating uh, and providing awareness in schools and communities. And, and whilst I, I, I applaud all efforts in relation to trying to address this problem globally, uh, I've, I've found from my experience that the way it's been done to this point has been very disjointed and each organisation operating in their own silos not much sharing of information or or each other's projects and what they could achieve together or what they can achieve individually. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that, that, that being an inherent problem in most uh, aid or welfare type uh, problems in the world. And and so look, I, I spent a lot of time uh, researching, but but also then developing a model that we, we are tri we're trialling. We have been for a, a number of months now. Um, which we call our Sentinel model, that, that our goal is this model is to become a standard practice in each of the countries that we're bringing it to, in that we, we plan to set the model up, uh, prove the model works, and hand the model over to government uh, to, to take it on as the best practice approach mm. on dealing with child sexual exploitation in their country. Uh, because so you work all, alongside governments and police as well, don't you? Correct. Yeah, that's right. Um, so that's that's what our, our long-term objectives of, of the organisation and of our Sentinel model are. We're trialling that in Indonesia now, and that started in Bali 12 months ago. Uh, we have developed education and awareness packages uh, in, in consultation with a committee of local uh, representatives and, uh, and, and experts, uh, you know, like child psychologists and things like that, for school programs and things, education department. And those, those programs have now been signed off and we've begun delivering them uh, in villages throughout uh, the, the northeastern regions of Bali. Uh, we're also providing seminars in the villages to hundreds of people um, in the trial area that we're running this program on uh, what the issue of child sexual exploitation is, uh, what uh, should be done about it, that the, the community is no longer standing for this, and this is what should be done when it occurs in our community, and this is how we can be vigilant. And this is coming from local people. It's not coming from Project Karma. It's a program we've developed we recruit from the local community, we train them, we resource them, and they, they conduct these seminars of education and awareness throughout the villages and, uh, and communities in these rural areas, which is where a lot of the vulnerable uh, children are located that we find cases uh, of, of sexual exploitation occurring and, and mm. also of trafficking. I think that's something that really sets you guys apart from a lot of other organisations, um, the fact that... Um, you know, from discussions we've had in the past, I know how important it is to you that these communities are able to basically run this model themselves and that they're able to um, make these changes in their communities and actually feel like this is um, coming from, from their own communities and that, that they're taking control of um, the exploitation that's happening as opposed to just having, um, you know, a white Westerner come in and, and try to fix their country for them. Um, yes. Yeah, and, and, and what yeah. has been the response from a lot of the, uh, you know, police and local police and governments and organisations that you've worked with? 
every every agency that we've we've approached, uh, we are now working with and in a very positive relationship. We've had very very positive responses from both government and non-government uh, organisations uh, in Indonesia in running our, our project in Bali. Um, the, the school and education program and that village education program we're running at the moment is just one part of our model. Uh, we have agreements with law enforcement in Indonesia. Uh, we recruit and train local people from uh, security forces uh, within Indonesia, and uh, they perform. In, we, we receive much uh, reports and information of these crimes, and uh, we conduct an initial uh, information data collection, is what we refer to it as, um, where we then present a, a case to to the police uh, of, of evidence that we've obtained uh, in, a, in a professional briefing and then assist them in anything they require uh, to verify that information um, and leading through to a, an arrest phase um, where we then cannot offer our assistance in crime scene management, victim management, uh, and, and also through our lawyers. We have uh, pro bono lawyers involved with our organisation that can then assist prosecutors in seeing through uh, the, the prosecution phase. Uh, and then we have a, another area of that model that is focused uh, entirely on the uh, aftercare and rehabilitation of victims. And at the moment, we do that through a network of uh, non-government uh, and NGO, charity-based uh, service providers, which is obviously not adequate, and that's part of what we've identified mm. in Indonesia. So we've now what we've done is we've actually uh, created a, a committee which has a representative from each government uh, agency that's tasked with child protection and child welfare. There's a number of them in Indonesia. We have 23 members on this committee, and our first meeting happens in two weeks' time. And the the purpose of this committee is to create a new system in Indonesia of child welfare management, uh, child victim management, uh, particularly child sex uh, victims. And that's so fantastic because Southeast Asian countries, they, they tend to have a bit of a reputation for corruption. There's, you know, an understanding that perhaps they turn a blind eye to some of these things. Um and I know that's, you know, something that you've certainly seen in the past as well, but it's it's really heartening to hear that a lot of these communities and countries are getting behind you and that they do want to address these issues. Um, Very much so. What I was interested to ask you, you know, from working in numerous countries over the last few years, um, when it comes to trafficking or child exploitation, um, what would be some of the most maybe surprising or shocking things that you've come across that people in the West maybe aren't aware of? Um, yeah. I, 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 well, first, I think just the sheer scale of, of the problem that we're dealing with globally. I think that's the first thing that most people are not aware of as part of the problem. Uh, yeah, most people aren't aware that, that in Southeast Asia alone, um, the, you know, the, the studies that, have, that show that there's around 2 million children every year that are being held in situations of sexual slavery uh, and sexual exploitation, whether that be online or physically in backyard brothels uh, or even their own parents' house, mm. um, they're being prostituted. And you know, 2 million children, I try to put that in perspective when I talk to people about, you know, for instance, how many children are in the whole state of New South Wales and there's about 1.7 million children in the state of New South Wales. So we're talking about more than every single child in New South Wales living in a situation where they are being held against their will and they're being raped, often daily, often by many people. Mm. And this is an industry that so far, the, the, the figures just keep going up, but the last data we saw is exceeding $40 billion US dollars per year in the, in the trading of children, uh, sexual trading of children. It's unbelievable. Uh, 
And yeah. and you're right, like it's hard to get a, a comprehensive understanding of the sheer scale. Um, I know when we, we talked a couple of years ago, um, I'd been researching, you know, trafficking and exploitation of children for several years and even I was shocked at some of the things that you were mentioning. I think from one of the things that stood out to me the most was when you said that um, there was a time that you and your team found children being trafficked um, in stowage boxes on boats being sent, I think it was from Cebu, was it to the Philippines? Yeah, from Bohol. Yeah, correct. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, and I've seen similar things uh, in, in children being trafficked from islands like Sumba uh, into Bali. Um, you know, surrounding islands coming through Padang Bay. It's one of the the, the, uh, the deserts or the villages that we're working in because it's got the main port that goes through to a lot of the uh, the eastern islands. Uh, so we see the same thing as that example you just gave. We're seeing the same thing happening in uh, you know, Lombok and Bali. Mm. Yeah, so that, that's probably the first thing that I would, I would say that people aren't aware of, and that's probably part of the problem. But it's very heartening to see in, in the time that I've been involved in this, there's been many organisations that have helped to make this happen, but there's definitely been a shift uh, in society about this problem and about being the willingness to talk about it, even media being willing to cover it. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, but these sort of things weren't uh, really talked about you know, for, a lot, for many generations. Uh, and that's obviously been a huge part of the problem. And I think people are starting to see the scale of what we're talking about through things like the, uh, the, the, the uh, Royal Commission into uh, Child Sex Abuse in Institutions in Australia uh, and now flowing on to things like Cardinal Pell. Um, mm. The things that have gone on you know, in Australia's history, not just the world, you know, we're talking about just Australia, that have been swept under the carpet uh, in relation to these crimes. Oh, for, exactly. For uh, and we're all now starting to see how many victims there really have been and the damage that it's done to those people. Uh, and, 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 and you wouldn't have seen a person like Pell uh, being charged or found guilty or, or what he's going through now 30 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, exactly. There's been a culture of very much shame and, and, and protection of, uh, whether that be directly or indirectly, uh, of, of offenders and and. This is what's propagated this problem, and Australia is not alone in this. It's, it's been a global. The Roman Catholic Church isn't alone in this. It's been a problem that's perpetuated for generations you know, through human history around the world. It's never, it, it's never gone away. It never will go away. Mm. And we just, we need to, as a, as a global society, get better at managing it because it will always be around, and we need to manage it better. And I think that's really important to to note because I hear a lot of people say. You know, we want to get, uh, we want to reduce trafficking to zero. We want to reduce domestic violence to zero. We want to stamp out child sex abuse. And I'm like, that's fantastic. That's what any decent person wishes for. But in reality, we're never going to see these things completely disappear. All we can do is try to get better at finding ways to actually, um, to actually reduce it. And like you said, better, better systems in place, um, to address these situations and to catch vulnerable children before they actually start being abused um, or to, you know, the right strategies in place to rehabilitate these kids and and to catch the perpetrators as well and shut down these pedophile rings. And um, I've seen you working incredibly hard at that over the years. And another thing that I think maybe isn't understood so well by people in the West is... Um, that it's not always just some seedy uncle or some tuk-tuk driver that's 
trafficking out these kids. Sometimes it's their it's their parents and including female family members as well, isn't it? Absolutely. That's, that's exactly right. And a lot of these things would be uh, very difficult for, for, for people that have grown up in countries like Australia to, to, to grasp. I mean, it's, it's an abhorrent thought to think that a mother would take money mm. uh, to, to prostitute her own nine-year-old child out to a, a local or a foreign man, um, knowing full well what's going to happen. Um, but that's, that's the reality. That's what's happening. Um, we've got organisations like IJM that have worked with Philippine police now for a good three, four years, uh, and, and they're getting amazing results. They've, they've, had, they've had over, uh, I think last time I read, it was over 180 arrests in three years, all, all to do with, mostly to do with online, wow. where it's families that are using their own children. It might mm. be the auntie, it might be the mother, it might be the uncle, um, but they'll get a few kids and they'll run a little syndicate. Um, people logging in from overseas, paying on Bitcoin or Skype, uh, you know, videoing it through Skype and paying through it uh, using uh, cryptocurrencies and things like that. Oh, it's just um, unbelievable. It's rampant. It's absolutely rampant. Um, and and we, we need to acknowledge that while there will always be a – while there's a demand, people are going to be willing to supply it. Exactly. And if we understand the science behind pedophilic disorder and what drives people, uh, the majority of people that commit these offences to commit the offences, then we need to understand that this is a lifelong problem that this person will have and does have. And it will never go away. It doesn't matter mm. how long you put them in jail. It doesn't matter. You know, they have a sexual orientation that is towards prepubescent children. And what we've learned about sexual orientation, psychology says it, you can't change it. You can't therapy a person into another sexual orientation. Mm. You can't drug them. You can't lobotomize them. It won't change the fact that once a person's sexual orientation is defined, it can never be changed. And then how do we? Manage it because this person is now a risk for the rest of their life. And we, how we've managed them up to this point has been pretty poor, you know, and there's mm. countless cases of this in the media over the last 20, 30 years, you know, of, of, of people that have been identified as a risk in the past that haven't been managed properly and bang, more victims yeah. that could have been avoided. And talking about those failings of, of managing people that have, um, you know, this this disorder, this this fantasy or this desire to rape children um until recently we were still seeing australians who had a history of child sex offending um being able to travel overseas and essentially go to another country and and rape a child there instead um and that was something that you were really passionate about and you teamed up with darren hinch to tackle this and to try to stop these offenders being able to go on i think what um Darren called essentially child rape holidays. Yeah. How did you and Darren end up coming together to team up on this and, and what was the, the outcome of all of your work well, over was, the last few years? It was one of the issues I identified through my work overseas. We've obviously done a number of investigations on Australians and had them prosecuted overseas. Uh, we had a lot of information on other Australians. It led me to inquiring with, with certain bodies within Australia. Um, just just how many of these people that we are allowing to come overseas when we already know that they're a risk. And this, the data that I had come back was quite quite shocking. Um, you know, I, there were a lot of figures, but, but to give you an idea, I mean, there was uh, on average around 250 uh, registered child sex offenders from Australia that were going to Bali every year. Uh, and that data was from 2014. You know, so there's nearly one registered child sex offender from Australia a day that was going into, into Bali. 
Um, there was over 300 that entered the Philippines in the same year. Um, you know, in that one year, there was over 800 that travelled. And they were the ones that, that actually um, abided by the, the, the law that was at the time, where they the, the incumbents was on them to notify the Australian Federal Police that they wanted to travel. And that's so Australia. messed up in the first place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, the, the Australian Federal Police would then do an assessment if they thought that the person was no not a high risk. They would then allow the person to leave the country uh, and the only incumbents upon them was they would notify the inbound country this person's coming and that they have a, a, this conviction and they would leave it up to the, uh, the immigration of that country to decide whether the person would be allowed to, to enter. Um, and so when I found all that out, I actually went to the Philippines, I went to Thailand, I went to um, Indonesia uh, and I went to the immigration offices in, in the capital cities of each of those countries. I've uh, got connections there and I, I, I was able to go in and meet with people and actually have a look at the, the notification system that was, was being, that, they, that a lot of these uh, agencies used to communicate between each other. And uh, I, the short of that story is that there were notifications that were three months old on a system from Australian Federal Police of certain people that were travelling uh, child sex offenders that had not even been opened. Unbelievable. Uh, so, got, so they were already in the country, possibly abused a child. Gone. Yeah, and yeah, left. So I came back with that information and I brainstormed on it as to, you know, obviously this is outrageous, but, you know, we can't keep having this. And it's not just Australia, other countries are doing it. We've got to start somewhere. I'm an Australian. I've got connections in Australia. I'm going to look at trying to get this, this looked at. So the, the strategy I ended up going to Darren Hitch. Uh, at the time, he, he wasn't a politician at the time. He'd actually only just registered the party and was going to announce that he was running for Senate. Um, but at the time, he was still a journalist. He had uh, Hinch Live on Sky News, and he's got a reputation you know, in Australia of being very much anti-pedophile. Um, the man's gone to jail for uh, you know, naming pedophiles under suppression order and things like that, so he's known for this type of thing. So uh, it took me a long time to get his attention. Uh, finally, I got him to agree to meet me for a coffee, and uh, that was in October 2015. And uh, I, I laid it all out on the table over a coffee, and he was sickened. Um, pretty much by the time it took me to get home from secure, he'd emailed me a, a link to the, the article he'd written on his blog about our meeting and how astounded he was that these people were even allowed to leave the country. And mm. so that, that's sort of where it began. Um, you know, I suggested at one point, you know, like, why are we even letting them leave the country? You know, because that's just the 800 that have actually declared they wanted to leave. What about ones that aren't even notifying? There's no red flag system. There's nothing that... To, to notify when they leave the country, you know? Oh, and exactly. He was just shocked by it. He went and verified a lot of the information on supply. He checked it out. He was obviously preoccupied too when he's, he just started, he just announced to the world that he was going to run for Senate and start a political party. So he had a, a lot on his plate with campaigning and everything else. But he told me at the time, he said, Look, I, I'll give you my word. If I get voted in, this will be my number one uh, priority. He said, I'll, This will be put forth before any other policy. We want to stop these bastards leaving the country. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to his credit, you know, he stuck to his word and his party uh, got together and, and with, his, with, you know, the Julie Bishop and other, uh, Michael Keenan, um, and, and obviously later on the Prime Minister. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was only, uh, only took them six months of being voted in before uh, Malcolm Turnbull came up in a press conference and said, uh, he's been notified of this problem that, that Australian child sex offenders are leaving the country in droves and going to these places that are known for these crimes, and the government's going to put a stop to it. But, and that was in the November of 2016 when that, mm. that was announced. 
Yeah, and the good news was that it didn't actually take that long for for you guys to be successful with um, getting the right people on board to actually bring this law in. That's right. Well, Darren's office, you know, his team and, and, the, and the Darren Justice Party did all the work. Um, they worked closely with the government in, in developing the, the draft legislation. Um, and the, the whole process really took about seven months before the, 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 the legislation was uh, was presented in the uh, the House of Representatives. It was uh, voted um, bipartisan and uh, passed through to the Senate two weeks later and it was voted in unopposed as law. And Darren rang me the night that it went through uh, and just said, you know, we've, you know, we've done it and congratulations. And I was like, well, really, I didn't do anything other than bring this to your attention at the start and, and lobby for it as much as I can. You guys have done all the work. Um, but he said, look, my advisor's telling me this is actually one of the fastest pieces of legislation ever generated in Australia. Wow. Um, well, you know, together. Yeah. What our politicians can do when something's important enough. And I think the biggest thing that got this over the line, because this was actually, it was a big deal. It's actually the, the first type of legislation in the world where, where people have been banned from being able to travel um, for, for child sex abuse. And, and, and I guess, you know, we ran with a number of strategies on that. Uh, one was that, you know, if we, if, if we can ban bankrupt uh, bankruptees from being able to travel for five years. Oh, exactly. Surely, yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, of course there was an argument of human rights where a person has, has done their time, they've been punished, you know, do you punish them, are you allowed to punish them more? Is this a punishment? Um, a person's right to have a passport and travel, which is covered under the UN uh, Convention of Human Rights. Uh, so there's a number of issues, but each time, uh, myself, whenever I was asked about it, and I, I don't know the same with Darren or others that were involved, would always say, unfortunately, it's going to be a hard decision for a government to make, but... They've either got to side with the safety of children because the risk is obviously overwhelming. The data is there. The, the science is there. The risk is far too uh, overwhelming for a, for a duty of care of a government to allow this to happen. You have a duty of care to protect children all over the world from your citizens just as much as you have to, the, the duty of care for your own citizens. Oh, exactly. So if, if this person's been recognised and identified as enough of a risk in Australia to be put on a child sex offender register, then why would we allow them to leave the country and go to these places where we know that these crimes are happening, unabated, unmonitored, unchecked, and are clearly the government sided with that. They said, no, children's safety's got to come first. The risk is too high. We're going to side with it and we're bringing in the law. And they banned it. And that's a world first. Um, so we're now working with other governments. Um, I'm consulting currently with the, uh, in the UK and also in the US uh, to... to to, to bring in since well, my, my goals to, to get similar legislation uh, developed in those countries and have them banning their registered child sex offenders. Um, and I just want to point out quickly that none of, none of these one points that we're talking about today are the solution to, to this issue. I don't think there is any one solution. I think that there, there, there has to be multiple strategies uh, that, are, that are enacted uh, in a strategic way uh, to, to address this problem. And I think things like banning uh, registered child sex offenders is a logical uh, part of the, of the solution. I think uh, once you keep keeping them in your country, then you've got to monitor them better. They need to be oh, sure exactly. people are going to get upset about human rights and things. Well, children's safety we've got to we've got to really weigh up what's more important. I think internet uh, restriction and monitoring uh, of, of people that are on a register should be mandatory. Exactly. Uh, GPS. Now, all these types of things, there's many different uh, initiatives that we see, not just in Australia but around the world, that governments both at state level and federal levels can do to protect children much better. 
I think you and Darren are a fantastic team and a hundred percent I agree you know people have their human rights um, and to a degree they deserve that but when it comes to protecting children a hundred percent we've got to put their safety a, a, above you know people who have a history of harming children um, but one of the things I wanted to ask you just before we we wrap up is um, if you could explain or share a little bit more about the work that you're doing in Australia because I, I know that one of the criticisms that you've had over the years from people who you know let's just call them armchair warriors <laughs> like to sit back and say oh well what about the kids in Australia why don't you help them first but you actually have been getting together with quite a lot of um, you know media people and people in government um, all different sort of leaders in Australia to talk about um, protection for children in Australia as well so I was hoping you could share a bit about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Children, you know, in Australia is just as important to us as any children. But I will say, children are children. It doesn't to me, it doesn't matter where a child comes from. Mm. They're, they're, children have the same rights anywhere in the world, and they all need to be protected. Um, that's not to say that we don't have a problem in Australia. You know, every country has an issue with with uh, child sex offence, um, and in Australia is, is no different. And I've spoken with many. Uh, community leaders, government, uh, law enforcement, particularly in areas that uh, we know that, that, that there are high problems uh, in northern parts of Australia, in some Aboriginal communities. You know, people go, oh, it's, it's very, you know, politically incorrect thing to say. Or, no, these are just but facts. it's true. These, it's these, true. These things are happening. Yeah, it's, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. No. I'm just saying that these things are happening. And we need to look at these hotspots in the world and where these problems exist, identify why it's happening. That's part of the problem. So to answer your question, what we do here in Australia uh, at government level uh, is firstly trying to bring awareness to politicians of what we're dealing with. I think how your, your laws are structured, how your policies are enacted and, 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 and in, enforced all come back to your level of understanding of the problem. And at the moment, our management of child sex offenders, the way we, we um, facilities we provide for those that haven't offended yet, that suffer this disorder, uh, awareness within the general community, all of it is very, very poor. And that, that, that's got to come first at government level. Um, governments have run many campaigns in, in the last few decades to change society's uh, views and opinions. Look at mental health. Uh, nobody wanted to talk about mental health 30 years ago. You know, it was all hush-hush. People exactly. put in institutions. You know, we know what happened. Um, now look at today. It's a completely different scenario. That, did, that didn't happen overnight and it didn't just happen by coincidence. That's been a strategic, uh, targeted effort by the government over many, many years. A lot of money, a lot of resources, education in schools, communities, universities, advertising campaigns, mental uh, health, uh, education within uh, medical association, doctors, you know, all these sort of things. It's been a targeted... And look at, look at what it is today, you know, Mental health is considered part of your workplace. As an employer, you're responsible for a person's mental health just as much as their physical well-being. Exactly. So, so these shifts can occur, but there has to be a targeted uh, you know, effort in doing so. And mm. to, to begin with, there needs to be a better understanding. And from my experience in talking with many politicians around the world, there's very poor understanding. In society in general, there's a very poor understanding. That's because it's been such a taboo topic for so long. So the first, the first thing we look at in these countries is, is talking with politicians about the science behind this. Uh, one of the things I'm looking at at the moment is, is with this, the state government in Victoria, 
Uh, I've been talking with, uh, with Stuart Grimley, who's, who's just been elected in as part of Derenich's Justice Party, um, about uh, bringing a, a forum together in Victoria uh, of medical uh, ex experts and psychological experts, uh, law enforcement, government representatives, politicians, um, and, and other experts from from NGOs and things to to, to discuss exactly what the, the pedophilic disorder is and start to educate our politicians um, to, to then be able to look at the current policies and legislations we have in place and whether they really are adequate. Would you and say we, on top of yeah. that that there also needs to be um, that that training and, and that deeper understanding also needs to be handed down to people who are in positions of power in the justice system, um, oh, you know, i.e., uh, yeah, you know, judges as well? Correct, and I think, but that's where it flows from. A judge's authority and a judge's power only comes from the legislation, and who creates the legislation? Politicians, mm. lawmakers. So you've got to start at the top, uh, which is what we're doing, and I think if you change those policies and those laws at, at the government level, it then flows down. The judiciary are then bound to follow the legislations. For instance, at state level, what we're talking about, not just in Victoria but other states, where there, there's many provisions that can be looked at to protect children better. The, the Bail Act in, in most of these states, so the Bail Act in Victoria, for instance, why shouldn't there be an amendment that, uh, that takes into consideration child sex offending, particularly if there's been a, a prior conviction? Um, at the moment, it's treated no different to any other offence. If this person has harmed, particularly if this person has harmed a child before, he should not be given bail. I mean, there's so many examples. Oh, we see it all the time. I mean, it just makes me so, so angry every time I look at the news and, you know, it's another case of um, child rape or, you know, child abuse. And, and one of the first things you see is um, such and such has been given bail or yeah. such and such had, you know... Was already on bail for for prior, you know, now, exploitation of a child. <laughs> yeah. So these are the things that we. You know, that's just one thing. You know, things like mandatory sentencing take away judges' ability to to be to have discretion. I'm sorry, I'm, I know judges won't want to hear that. They'll probably not like me for saying something like that. Oh, I hundred percent agree. I, I do believe judges have their power and their authority. It's their courtroom. But but at the end of the day, a judge is not a psychological expert. He's relying on a psychological report that's being generated by by a psychologist as to, you know, what this person's condition is and what their potential of rehabilitation and what treatment plan they should be on. He's, he's relying on all that to make a decision as to how long mm. the person should, that person should be incarcerated for, but then also how long they should be put onto a, a or if they should be put onto a register. Right? So in an, in an ideal world, would you want to see um, a sort of judge or justice system where there is a set sentence? In so, for example... Yeah. It's life. Yeah. It's life behind bars. Would you well, want to see something like life. that? Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't suggest life, but I would suggest a figure, um, and it, it's simply as a punishment. It's not to do anything to do with rehabilitation. Mm. It's to do with send deterrent to, to that person and also to the rest of the community that, that this is what happens when you when you rape a child. Uh, as an example, and I'm not an expert. I'm not saying I have the answers. I'm, I'm suggesting that we get all the right people together to discuss these topics and come up with these, the, the mm. answers to these questions. But if you're asking me that, my opinion on that, I'd put 10 years on it as mandatory, straight up 10 yeah. years. It's not about trying to make you a better person. It's not about you you know, learning some remorse about what uh -huh. you did. Yeah. It's a straight up punishment. I think 10 straight years, uh, like in my, just my personal opinion, I think 10 years as a minimum, you know, yep. place exactly. to start from. Um, I just wanted to say I think it's, you know, I'm constantly inspired and 
amazed by all of the resilience and the dedication that you've shown for you know um, looking out for children overseas as well as in Australia like I said earlier there's a lot of people who maybe would have um, been confronted with some of the things you had but maybe they didn't have either the resilience or um, the financial um, support to, to be able to do what you've done. One final question I'd like to ask you, which is something that I just find fascinating, and just to piggyback off the comment that you made before about mental health and how far we've come with mental health awareness, I'm really curious to know how you look after your own mental health, given all of the sort of very traumatic things that, that you come across in your line of work. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's always a constant management process in itself and it's the same for the people, uh, the good people that work with me and work for my organisation. Uh, it's something that we're, we're very focused on. Um, obviously, my background in, uh, in, in policing, I've seen a lot of colleagues uh, that have succumbed to, to PTSD and, and other issues, uh, depression, um, and that's all directly related to the type of work and, and the situations that they've been exposed to. Um, combined with um, an organisation that really didn't have structures or systems in place to deal with uh, people suffering uh, from these types of traumas. Um, and it's now well documented, it's all coming out, not just in Victoria but around, around the world really, uh, of PTSD with emergency workers. And so I learned early on in my career uh, to, to, to begin self-management of that because I'd seen already early in my career people succumb to that. It doesn't matter how tough you are. I think the way that I was managing it for myself uh, early in my career, I've learned that that wasn't the way to manage it. Um, you know, you learn as you go. Um, you know, I often tell people, you know, the first, you know, real horrible job that I went to, which was a double murder suicide, involved a, a young, a baby. Um, you know, after a close to thirty-hour shift, uh, I was back in the the uh, police station and obviously really tired wanted to go home and had to go and see the, the senior sergeant, the boss. And when you're a probationary constable, you don't even know what the boss's name is. If you go into his office, you're in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. So I was obviously really scared. Um, but they made, they reassured me and I went in and he gave me the talk about, you know, this is this is your job. This is what you've signed up for. Um, if you're not doing too well, then you might want to think about, you know, getting out. You're going to see more of this, you know. And I was like, Thanks for the support. He said, but he said, but he tried to turn it around. He said, look, you know, but I'll be honest with you. He said, it's not like this every day. He said, otherwise, none of us would be doing this job. He said, but I want you you to know, uh, I'm I'm an open door policy boss. You know, if if you're affected by this, if you're not sleeping well, or come see me, come just pop your head in and say, you need to have a chat. Mm. Okay, thank you. Uh, He said, but do you drink? And I'm like, well, 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 what do you mean? You know, it's your boss, you know. Like, he's like, alcohol, you drink. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, with my friends. He's like, oh, don't be stupid. Like, yeah, obviously you drink. What do you drink? I said, oh, I don't mind having a beer every now and then, you know. He's like, no, no, when you're having a serious drink, what do you drink? I said, oh, well, I drink bourbon. He goes, right. He goes, go and have a shower, get yourself cleaned up, go home. He goes, on your way home, he goes, you know where the, the Mitchell Hotel is? And I said, yeah. He goes, just swing by there. There'll be a bloke waiting there with a bottle of bourbon for you. <laughs> Take it home. Drink it all. Drink the whole bottle. Sleep it off. And I'll see you back here tomorrow night. Well, it's some unconventional advice. I think we've come a long way from there. <laughs> it's come a long way. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, fast forward to now. What are one or two things that you do now when you really need to um, 
debrief after seeing something quite traumatic. One is having a support network, having a couple of people that you can let off some steam with uh, that don't judge. Um, I don't. I mean, you don't. I don't personally. I don't share like details with those sort of people. Um, they'll they'll know I've had a rough trot, and I'll have a couple of drinks and a chat, and a barbecue, and I'll, I'll let my hair down in private with them. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And let off some steam. That's that's one thing that I've, I've, I know that's important to do every now and then. Um, yeah, there's been times where I know that I'm not travelling well and something's affected me quite well. And I rely on those people around me to point those things out as well. And I don't I don't argue that point. If someone points something out to me and says, listen, I don't think you're up too well. You're not eating or you're not sleeping or you're not... I, I, the, the, a lot of people will just dismiss that. I don't dismiss that anymore. I take that very serious because uh, quite often you don't notice these changes in yourself. Exactly. Uh, I'm saying this, this is someone who's been around trauma for 20 years. Mm. You know, like... I've seen a lot of horrible stuff. So I think that comes into it as well, just quickly, I think. The fact that I have been exposed to so much of this sort of stuff uh, throughout different points in my life, you do build up a certain amount of tolerance, but you are a human being. And, exactly. You know, I still see things that still shock me. And, uh, you know, if you don't have these things in place, eventually it, it does catch you. And I, I, I say that to all the people that I work with. Uh, and keep a very close watch on, you know, how they're travelling because obviously they get affected by these sort of things. Mm. So, you know, I think having the, the, that support network that, and, and be willing to listen when people point things out, uh, be willing to go and get help if you need. Uh, there's been a few times where I've gone and sought, uh, sought out a psychologist and spent a couple of weeks uh, dumping. But that's what I call it, dumping. Um, you know, I've, I've said to one of the guys I've, I've, I've had sessions with before, um, psychologists I've said to before that, yeah, I feel really sorry for you, mate. You know, you must dread when you see you've got an appointment with me because you've got to sit here and listen to me, you know, spew out some horrible bullshit that I've had to see or deal with. Um, you know, and, yeah, he said, well, he said, I signed up for this, mate. So, yeah. And I think that's kind of a funny point to mention too, but, I mean, it's, well, quite a serious point actually when you think about it because I think that is something that would probably prevent a lot of people from seeking help thinking, oh, I don't want to I don't want to dump all of this on someone or, you know, this stuff's really quite traumatic yeah. and serious. Um, so I think it's really great just to hear that someone in your line of work, um, even, even having experienced many of these things, like you said, for over two decades, even you're willing to go and speak to someone when, when you need to and you're quite open about doing that. Um, but I just wanted to say I – you know, I'm, I cannot support your work enough. And that's really why I wanted to, uh, I've been wanting to chat to you for ages and time has just gotten away. Um, but I think more people need to hear about the work that Project Karma is doing. So, um, so thank you again so much for making the time to chat today, especially when I know you're taking time out, um, back in Australia at the moment, um, before you head back overseas. But yeah, I'm very grateful for the work you're doing and I can't wait to see, um, yeah, what, what you guys do in 2019. Yeah, thank you, Jess. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was my chat with Glenn Hulley, former police officer and private investigator and currently the founder of Project Karma, which is a not-for-profit organisation fighting child exploitation and human trafficking. If you enjoyed my chat with Glenn and you want to get alongside them and do what you can to support their work, jump on their website, which is projectkarma.org.au. I know sometimes it can feel overwhelming with a lot of these issues going on in the world, but I truly believe that if we all just pick one thing and just take one small step, we can all make a difference. 
Thank you again for supporting my work. I love bringing these topics to you. I love talking about important issues and things in our society that are sometimes um, deemed maybe a little bit too serious. And um, I really appreciate your support. If you want to know more about Reasons to Live, jump on my Facebook page, Reasons to Live One More Day Every Day. Or you can jump on my website, jazzrawlinson.com and send me a message. As I mentioned in the beginning, if this chat has brought up any feelings of distress and you need support, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Thanks again, guys, and I look forward to chatting with you soon.